All right. Uh, we are going to begin with a prayer. Let's bow our heads for prayer and we will begin. Our Father in heaven, I ask that as we study the holy book of Revelation today in your Bible, that you would help us understand what is true. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. The last time that we were discussing Revelation chapter 13, we spent most of our time discussing the relation of the 42 months, the time of the 42 months to the events in the rest of the chapter. And we established the 42 months come prior to the healing of the deadly wound, the following after all the beast. We talked about the, the fire coming down from heaven and how it relates to Elijah and possible understandings of it related, for example, to the Pentecostal movement where fire came down from heaven um, in the day of Pentecost. Today we're looking at verse Revelation 13 and verse 15. Revelation 13 and verse 15. This is just after the issue of miracles. We talked about how miracles are all through the Bible a means of deception in the end of time. Revelation 13, verse 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and, what's that next word? Bond to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. A few observations. Does Revelation 13 indicate that there will be slaves in the end of time? There was a time when men made mockery of, of Ellen White in early writings because she speaks about slaves in the end of time, the slave being released from his master. Can you see the inconsistency of someone believing the Bible and making mockery of Ellen White on, the, on that basis? But more than that, do you realize that by modern estimates there are more slaves in the world today than at any time prior in Earth's history? Where are most of them? India. The majority of slaves are in India, but is America devoid of them? In fact, America has very many of them in the forms of unpaid domestic servants that are illegal aliens and are held captive because of their illegal status. So National Geographic had an entire feature edition on slavery in America. And slavery in the world, really, was what it was on, but it featured America just the year before last. So in verse 15, what is the punishment for not worshiping the image of the beast? It's death. So the image of the beast, while the image of the beast indicates or directs worship to the beast, does the image of the beast receive worship itself? In verse 15. Do men worship the image of the beast? You know, they do. And we have no indication of any sort that men are going to praise, um, like sing praise songs to a prostate Protestantism. Or that they're going to sing praise songs to the Pope, for that matter. 
what kind of worship is being discussed here? It's the kind of worship of honoring. How do I say this right? It's the worship of honoring someone with the prerogatives of the Creator. That is, what rights come with being Creator? The right to, for example, to forgive. The right to create law. The right to determine purpose. When men are honored with the attributes that belong to the Creator, that is worship. What I'm trying to explain to you is in what sense the Bible is predicting that men are going to worship the image of the beast. Not praise songs to a prostate Protestantism. The mark of the beast, is it received in one place or two? Let me try that question again. It's not what I wanted to ask. The seal of God is received in the forehead and in the hand. The seal of God is received in the forehead in Revelation chapter 7, which draws its imagery from Deuteronomy where the law of God is a symbol in the forehead and in the hand. It's in both. But the mark of the beast is in either. There is a difference between a both and an either. That is, God requires a heart religion that's in the mind that manifests itself in holy actions. So what does it say? He that has clean hands and a clean heart. God requires both. The devil has always been willing to accept hypocritical worship. Is that obvious in the temptation of Jesus? What the devil revealed in contrast to Jesus is a willingness to accept heartless, insincere worship of whatever kind and for whatever motive. In other words, the devil is not so interested in receiving praise as he is in leading to disobedience. Would he have been willing to accept Jesus bowing down to him just for the purpose of getting things? He offered it. He offered a bribe for worship. So what can men receive in verse 17? They can receive the mark or the name or the number. This is a point that was brought out in, in the Revelation series by John just a couple of days ago. He bought out what people are condemned for in the seven last plagues. Look at Revelation 16, verse 2. Revelation 16 and verse 2. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. So we need victory over the mark of the beast, over the beast, over the name of the beast, over the number of his name. 
How many of you heard when John talked about this? He correlated these four entities. The four are the beast, the image, the mark, and the name. They're mentioned in Revelation 13, 14, and 15, and 16. With the first four commandments. That is, it's the worship of the beast versus the worship of the lamb. First commandment, thou shalt have no other god before me. It's the worship of the image versus the worship of the Lamb. The second commandment is, Thou shalt not make unto thee any image. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. The contest is between the name of God, Father New Jerusalem in our foreheads, and receiving the name of the beast. Very apparently, where would you receive his name? It'd be in the forehead. What is the third commandment? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Of course, we know from other study that these are professedly Christian entities taking the name of Jesus, but in vain do they worship me teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And what's the mark? It's the substitute or counterfeit worship day. The mark of the papacy's authority. So we're in chapter 14 now. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. So there you see the contest between the names. In Revelation 7, what's written in the forehead? Or what's in the forehead? It's the seal of God. But in Revelation 14, what is in the forehead? That's the Father's name. And is it the same class that has both marks? It's 144,000 in both chapters, 7 and 14. The seal of God is here. Unless there's two things written in the forehead, it's the same as the Father's name. It's the character of God, his law being written into the heart. Verse 2. Well, first of all, also notice in verse 14 that it says written in their foreheads as opposed to stamped in their foreheads or tattooed in their foreheads. It's written in the forehead. Where do we find something being written in the mind in the Bible? Absolutely. That's exactly it. Seal the law among my disciples. The writing of the law of God, it's so clear when we look at the illustrations that are given. Chapter 14, and we're looking at verse 3. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song with a hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. Very apparently, the hundred and forty-four thousand are going to be a special class even in heaven. Is it apparent here that they have privileges in heaven that others don't have? I'd like to highlight for you an idea of the timing of the first five verses of Revelation chapter 14 that they would be better to connect in your mind to chapter 13. That chapter 13 
takes us all the way from the time of Jesus to the contest over the mark of the beast to those that have the victory of the mark of the beast, the 144,000, and we find them in heaven already there with the seal of God still in them. And they learn a song there that no one else can learn. And have they been already redeemed in Revelation 14? They've been redeemed. So what is this song? I want to suggest to you that this is a song of experience. It's an experience that is described in this chapter as being as being a song that no one else can learn. It looks like it's named in chapter 15 as the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And if you think through what Moses and Jesus had in common, you'll get an idea of what this song is about. Moses and Jesus. Was Moses a sinless man? No, he wasn't. Moses and Jesus had two things in common. They were agents in giving the law and they offered their soul as a sacrifice to save guilty men. Do you remember when Moses did that? And I pray thee, if not, blot out my name out of the book which thou hast written. This is the experience that is going to characterize the 144,000. That is, that they are the ones who have prayed so earnestly for a fallen church that they could have wished themselves accursed from Christ for their brother and their kinsmen according to denomination. Of course, I'm refer- I'm re- I was quoting from Romans 9, where Paul said that he had prayed so much for the Jews that he could wish himself accursed from Christ if it would benefit his brother and his kinsmen, that is, other Jews. That's the experience of Jesus. It's going to be the experience of the 144,000. Romans chapter 9, let me give you a verse. Romans chapter 9, in verse 3. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. It's Romans 9.3 is just illustrating the same experience that Moses had, the same experience that Moses had, that Jesus had. It's the experience of intercession of a love for fallen people that would be willing to trade places with them if that would mean they could go to heaven. Did God accept the offering of Moses for his fellows? You know, he didn't. He said, those that have sinned against me, them will I blot out of my book. But he did spare them from immediate destruction when Moses prayed. And what kind of answer will God give to the prayer of the 144,000? He'll give them the answer that he will not immediately destroy the church, but will give the people a chance to repent. And some will, and most won't. There's another experience that the 144,000 will share with Jesus. It will be the experience of feeling forsaken of God. 
It's why I've wondered at times. It's why I've chosen in my own heart that if I receive the first plague, do you remember who the first plague falls on? It says it falls on those that worshipped the beast and worshipped his image. I've made a pledge to myself that if I receive that grievous sore, I'm going to hold on to my integrity and continue to worship God. What do I mean by that? I mean that when I look at the, at the experience of Job, when I look at the experience of the time of trouble, when I read the inexplicable, inexplicable experience of God's people of not knowing whether or not they're accepted of God after the plagues fall, it would not shock me in the end that if God allowed his people to receive the first plague as a test of their fidelity. Am I saying that's going to happen? No, I'm saying that that or some other way, we are going to wonder if we are accepted with God and are going to have to hold on to our integrity in the face of a belief that God has forsaken us and left us to destruction. Did Jesus have to do that? He did. Verse 4. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. There's a lot I learned in connection with verse 4. For example... I want to say this right, that when you become a Christian, all things are made new. Old things are passed away. Does this passage mean that from the day they were born, these people grew up as Sabbath-keeping Seventh-day Adventists? No, but it means they've been born again. They're a new creature. Their old experience in Babylon has been wiped away and washed away. And though they were defiled with these spiritual uh, whores prior, now they're considered virgins. You know, I learned that from reading in Isaiah, where God says, because one of you look up the term virgin daughter, I mean, in your computer, and take us to Isaiah. The virgin daughter of Israel laughs at thee. Is it Isaiah? Is it? Or is it Jeremiah? Um, Isaiah 37. Isaiah 37 and verse 22. This is the word which the Lord hath spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, hath despised thee and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem hath shaken her head at thee whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice? This is the story of Hezekiah. The story of Hezekiah where the Assyrian is making fun of Israel. Listen, was Israel in this situation a... Would I have called her a virgin daughter? This is Hezekiah, whose father was one of the most wicked rulers ever in the history of Judah. This is Judah, which is still full of idols and 
idolaters and their children. And yet under the revival and dependence of Hezekiah, how does he refer to his church? He calls her a virgin. It is incredible. It's along the lines of incredible that you find when Balaam looks down at Israel and God says through Balaam, I have not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Do you know what the minor prophet says about that? Can you look this up for me, Mr. Um, William? I think it's in Micah. I think it's Micah 6. You can only be turning to Micah, I think it's there. Um, we're looking for where it says, learn. Look up Balaam. Balaam in Micah. Okay, Micah chapter 6 and looking at verse 5. O my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab consulted, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal. Listen, that you may know what? The righteousness of the Lord. If you want to understand the righteousness of God, what story does God refer you to? It's the story of Balaam and Balak, particularly the answer that Balaam gives. And you read that, and, and so what God asks, or excuse me, what Balaam is asked to do is to curse Israel. And what does God say through Balaam? I have not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Do you understand how incredible that is? A million people, are they a million converted people that Balaam was looking at? They were a million people, the minority of which were consecrated. A million people, most of which were corrupt at heart. And what does God say about them? I have not beheld iniquity in Jacob. This is the same Jacob that just a few days later experienced Baal Peor. Did God turn? He did. He turned his position. He slew them. But I'm telling you, it was the same people. When we read, all I'm saying right now is I'm trying to explain this idea of Revelation 14, that these people are virgins, that this is not a reference to the fact that they have always been faithful, but a reference to the fact that they have become faithful. I know a man that said to to his girlfriend who was to become his fiance, that he considered her to be a virgin though she wasn't one because she had become a Christian after her worldly cycle that led her out of her virginity. He was communicating the same kind of idea that's here in Revelation 14. Now, what do, what do evangelicals teach about these men? They teach that they are literal Jews, young men who have never been involved with women. They virtually teach, whether they mean to or not, that God places a spiritual premium upon 
the unmarried. I think you'll find that's countered by the teaching of Scripture. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Now, the idea of first fruits, you know, there already was a first fruits before there were 144,000. Jesus and the, those translated with him or taken to heaven with him were first fruits. Does that make the Bible inconsistent? No. In the, in the analogy of fruits and harvest, there were two harvests in the Jewish year. There was a spring harvest and there was a fall harvest. And there were first fruits in both harvest. There was a harvest from the early rain. That was a representation of Jesus and those that were taken to heaven with him. And is there a trans is there a first fruits connected to the latter rain? It's a much greater first fruit. It's a much larger harvest. The hundred and forty four thousand, what does it mean first fruit? It means first ripe. When is the sickle put in in Revelation fourteen? When the harvest is ripe. The hundred and forty four thousand are the first ripe the first in whom the ministry of God has been finished or brought to completion. Verse 5 says, And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. I think in this class I've already had you read the article called Perfection in the Last Generation. Did I already assign you to read that at some point in the semester or not? Okay, I'm assigning it now then. It's in your handout. It's in the file. Perfection in the last generation. It'll help you understand this verse. In their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Turn in your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 3, and let's look at verse 13. I did. Zephaniah chapter 3 and looking at verse 13. It says, The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. You might gather from the last part of the verse that this is referring to the new earth, that they will feed and lie down and none shall make them afraid. But recognize that it's a metaphor, isn't it? Who feeds and, lie and lies down? It's sheep. Nards, these are those who follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. It's the same idea we just found in Revelation 14. 
Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout. Now we read about the daughter of Zion in Isaiah. What did God call the daughter of Zion? Virgin. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments, he hath cast out thine enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. You'd like to study the rest of that prophecy. It's an incredibly positive one. Turn back to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. We just finished the section that comes prior to the three angels' messages. We've talked about the first angel's message. Let's move to the second angel's message. Revelation 14 and looking at verse 8. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. There are so many hints we find in this passage to, to guide us elsewhere. First of all, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That is twice. What does it indicate? It indicates that there have been two falls of note in prophecy. One predicted by the Apostle Paul from the leaders of the early Christian church that led to the papacy. But there's been another fall. And that is the fall of Protestantism when they refused to accept the message of preparing for Christ's second coming, the message of the law of God. Offshoot movements have arisen in the Adventist church periodically. And they have taken statements in the great controversy that speak about this message being given again and with greater power in the fourth angel's message. And they have reasoned like this. Well, let me tell you what they, what they find. Ellen White said that this is an announcement of a recent fall. Recent meaning the, the fall of Protestantism as opposed to the papacy. So they've reasoned like this, that if the message must be given again, it must mean that there has been a third fall. Maybe the papacy has fallen, Protestantism has fallen, Adventism is fallen. But when the message is given again in Revelation 18, does it say Babylon is fallen, is fallen, is fallen? No, again, it's Babylon is fallen, is fallen. It's a reference to the same two falls, just a more thorough fall of Babylon with a greater power of presentation. When we talk about Babylon, what are we talking about? Do you notice here that Babylon is a great city? Do you notice that? It's the same way in Revelation 17, but we found a great city mentioned earlier in Revelation. One-tenth of the city fell. In Revelation 11, which tenth of the city was that? It was France. That is, the city was a reference to the Holy Roman Empire. And here we have, does the Holy Roman Empire have a religion? You know, it has two religions today. 
One religion is papal. What's the other one? It's apostate Protestantism. In Germany, the Netherlands, in England. Here is Babylon, the great city that is fallen, is fallen. And does she have political authority? Do we find that out from this passage? She makes all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The fornication of nations in the Bible, not the fornication of men, but the fornication of nations is consistently the same. It's the union of God's religious bodies with churches, excuse me, with nations. It is a dependence in the book of Ezekiel and in the book of Jeremiah and in the book of Isaiah. It is the dependence of a church on the civil powers for authority or support. What do we learn from the second angel's message? We learn that there is a forcing of men by political power to follow the dictates of a church organization. And we learn that that constitutes the fall of Babylon. Because what does it say? Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Let me read it to you. That great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath. If we ask the question, why is Babylon fallen? What made her Babylon fallen? It's the enforcing of religious laws by civil authority. Then can you see that the second angel's message hasn't reached its complete fulfillment yet? Because she made how many nations? All nations drink of the wine and the wrath of her fornication. That's exactly right. It hasn't reached its full fulfillment. That is a yet future experience. And that's why the fourth angel comes when it does reach its full fulfillment to give the message again with power. This wine... I guess there might be other times it would be useful to get to it. But this wine is a worthwhile thing to study. What does the word Babylon mean? Confusion. Babylon means confusion. Where is wine used in a, as a metaphor elsewhere in the Bible? Hint, hint, Isaiah. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28. And we're looking at verse 7. We need to start in verse 5. It's a prophecy re related to Revelation 14. 
Isaiah 28, verse 5. In that day shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty unto the residue, which is another word for the remnant of his people, and for a spirit of judgment to him that sitteth in judgment, and for strength to them that turn the battle to the gate. But they also have erred through wine, and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. Where do we find priests today? In what church? And where do we find prophets? In what set of churches? We find both. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err, what does it say? In vision, they stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so that there is no place clean. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? I guess what I'm trying to communicate to you, the connection between these passages, is that wine, as a metaphor, represents what confuses men's doctrines, confuses their judgment, confuses their vision. Wine, in this passage, is what, as a metaphor, represents that which confuses men's doctrine confuses their judgment, confuses their vision, where vision refers to their source of inspired authority. Look at chapter 29. Isaiah 29, and we're looking at verse 9. Stay yourselves and wonder... Cry ye out and cry, they are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, and hath closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers hath he covered, and the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. What does wine represent as a metaphor? It represents the deception where men are not able to understand the revelations that God has given, where they find the re open revelation of the book, for example, as a book that is sealed that they cannot comprehend. Has Babylon made nations drunk through her wine? She has made all nations drunk through her wine. Just listening. Turn back to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. And we're still in verse 8. Revelation 14 and verse 8. The last phrase says, The wrath of her fornication. You should know 
something about the issue of wrath in connection to Babylon and Jesus. Do they both have wrath in the book of Revelation? They do. And you might remember that Jesus appears later in Revelation in a garment that is stained with blood. And as Adventists, sometimes we have thought that that garment was stained with his own blood. But that's not the picture you get in the book of Isaiah. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah, chapter, I believe it's 62. It's 63. Isaiah, chapter 63. And we're looking at verse 1. Who is this that comes from Edom? Who is Edom? So Abraham was the father of the faithful. But not all of Abraham's children were faithful. Isaac was the father of the faithful, but not all of Isaac's children were faithful. He had two children. What were their, the names of the two sons? That's right, Jacob and Esau. The descendants of Esau are called in the Bible Edom. Here are two different bodies of men who represent people who are descendants of Abraham who could have had the birthright? Esau could have had it, but who ended up with it? Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. I'm just trying to help you understand this name, Edom. Who is this that cometh from Edom? Now, if we find out this is Jesus, it would be a question for us, why is he coming from Edom? It would make sense to us if he was coming from Israel or if he was coming from heaven, but where is he coming from? And at it begs the question, what was he doing there? With dyed garments from Bozrah, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save, wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine vat? I have trodden the winepress alone. And of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine, what does it say? Anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all of my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. What has he been doing in the land of Edom? He has been treading out the winepress of the wrath of God. Turn back to Revelation 14. Revelation chapter 14. And we're looking at verse 19 for a moment. Revelation chapter 14. And looking at verse 19. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. 
and the winepress was trodden without the city, and the blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse's bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs, that is two hundred miles. You know, I did something this morning in my computer. I didn't know what to expect, but here's what I did. Maybe you can type it or write it out in your notes so you can try it and see what you get. I'd read a commentary that said that miles could either be linear or square. And I took these to be square because if it's linear, then you know how long the blood is and you know how deep it is, but you don't know how wide it is. So you have no way to arrive at a volume. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying? But if it's square, can you arrive at a volume? Well, you can because you know the square area and you know the height. So I took 200 square miles and I did the conversions to turn it into square meters. What do you do? You multiply that by 1.6 squared to make it into square kilometers. Then you multiply that by a million to make it into square meters. And I took it being one meter deep. Do you follow what I'm saying? The horse's bridle. And then I took those cubic meters and trans transferred those into liters. Um, there are a thousand liters in a cubic meter. So you multiply it by a thousand. Then I divided it by six because there are about six liters of blood in the human body. And you know what number you come up with? 5.9 billion. Just about the population of the world. Fascinating, huh? Listen, I didn't fiddle with those numbers to make it come out right. I just typed in the data. Summary of what we've just shared. Babylon is fallen and is going to receive the wrath of God. And that's why we're going to call people out. You are dismissed.